0: Good morning morning. We continue our series on God's priceless promises Last week we looked at Hebrews 12 Today we're going to move over one chapter to Hebrews chapter 13 Everyday Christianity Life is real, Amen? amen? Life is real It's full of nitty-gritty details that we juggle each and every day. And our faith was designed to bring a relationship with Jesus Christ to bear on every aspect of our lives. We get into trouble when I think we try to separate life into two aspects, the sacred and the secular. You can't live that way. You can try. But when you do that, I believe both sides, sacred and secular, must be integrated together. They both must match. Both must be integrated to one another. We need a real world type of faith. Faith that touches every area of our life. And if we don't, If we develop this dichotomy of of faith and secular, we develop over time this shallow substitute for faith. We end up living an anemic form of spirituality devoid of power to change our lives and our behavior. We need our faith to be integrated into our total life. We must allow Christ and His truth to live in us and to live through us into this culture. There's a problem though. This culture is constantly pressuring us to conform to what it says. It says to us as believers go with the flow, just don't make waves. Just live your faith out in the church building, but when you step out, be one of us. And that pressure is constantly on us in all the different areas of our life. But when we allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, it is to the detriment of our spiritual vitality. So we need to stand for the truth. We need to live out the truth. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at six verses that cover a variety of topics that are full of practical application. And I can almost guarantee this morning that one of those six are going to pinch you. And you're going to say, Pastor, you're meddling. Well... I'm not meddling this morning, but the Word of God is very plain. And the Spirit of God, I think, is going to take this truth and really bring it home in each of your lives. Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 6, page 1286, there in the Pew Bible. Now let me give you kind of the background. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author presents to us the hall of faith. Variety of Old Testament saints, and he shows us examples that we can follow to be people of faith. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, he calls us to endurance. That's what we looked at, started to last week. And then we talked specifically about fatherly discipline that God brings into our life because we are one of his children. He also in chapter 12 warns us against rejecting God's grace. Now here in chapter 13 is a series of short exhortations or short commands either reminding us what to do or reminding us what to avoid. They should be, as he says, reminders. Let's read chapter 13 Verses 1 to 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? That ends the reading for this morning. In the first three verses of Hebrews 13, it's going to talk about spiritual qualities towards other people. Verse 1 let brotherly love continue. To fill in the blank there in your outline, it's a plea to love fellow Christians. It is a plea for the daily maintenance and proper manifestation of love between you and other believers in Christ. If there's anywhere on the face of this earth where you can come, it's this church and other churches like us where you should be loved and accepted, encouraged in your walk with Christ, Is that always the case in every church? No. 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 Hope so, yes. Hope so, yes. But the answer is no. And there are even times, I think, in our fellowship, it's not happening right now, where we begin to kind of bite one another. Author says, no, love one another. It involves treating fellow believers as esteemed family members. Now, you can't choose your natural family. But when you were brought into the family of God, God placed you as well into this family. And you look around. Are we all different, yes or no? Yes. Are some of you hard to love? I'm glad you understand it. We're not not denying it. Sometimes I'm hard to love. (laughs) Sometimes you tell me that too. And sometimes you're hard to love. And it's easier to just let that love kind of wane and say, you know what, I'm just going to avoid that brother or sister in Christ. I'm not going to spend time and encourage them. This exhortation, let brotherly love continue, it's not a particular emotion, but it's a call to meet one another's needs. Physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. I I need to tell you again how thankful I am that you as a church continue to contribute to what we call the Benevolent Fund. Now, we usually talk about it on Communion Sunday, but, but here's where it fits. You give, and all of a sudden, someone in our church, occasionally someone outside of our church, has a need, has a pressing need, and I get a call. And I can say, well, the Family of God, Grandview Church has given me some funds to help you out. Small amounts I can handle, large amounts I call the other elders, some of them, and we approved. And you would be surprised how many people we have helped sitting in this building right now. Because you understood Let brotherly love continue. So if there's something between you and another brother or sister in Christ, clear it up. Deal with it. So that love can continue. Secondly, in verse 2, let me read it again. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Number two, be intentional to practice love of strangers. This word hospitality actually is, the translated actually is love of strangers. And the author is saying, don't neglect it. Don't forget it. Be intentional. Can I add something else based upon 1 Peter 4, 9? Practice hospitality without complaint. Oh dear, i got to have someone over again. No. Don't lose the blessing. And he says here, as others have practiced hospitality in the past, some have entertained angels unawares. Probably referring back to Genesis 18, where Abraham practice hospitality and entertained angels and the lord in I think sometimes we also have entertained messengers from god unaware we have unless you've never opened your house there are blessings in disguise as we say yes to having people over or taking people out for a meal There are blessings involved in that. So, hospitality, number two. Number three, verse three remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. This is a reminder to care for those otherwise forgotten, out of sight, out of mind. The author says, care for those suffering, those going through bad times. And it's suggested here as I studied this, this is more than just offering prayer. This goes far deeper as identifying with their plight and their needs and those mistreated and stepping up to do what is necessary. As I thought about the application of this verse, I realize that anyone who has been marginalized or cast out by society is to be taken care of, remembered, ministered to. He, he says there, you have a body. You are capable of feeling the pain of suffering that these are going through. Identify with them. Don't allow them to remain Forgotten. Well, those are the qualities we should practice towards other people. And in verses 4 to 6, he is going to talk about threats to family stability. And what I realized as we look at verses 4 to 6, those threats to family stability come from within us. He's not talking about the culture. He's talking about our attitudes. In verse 4, the author here talks about attacks on marriage. Marriage is under attack in our culture. Amen? The culture defines marriage differently than God does. As if they know better what marriage is. But don't forget... God created marriage. He defined it as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. The problem is, we keep messing it up, don't we? We keep acquiescing to the culture. In verse 4, He's going to talk about two ways that marriage are attacked. Let me read it. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The first way that marriage is under attack is we dishonor marriage. We don't respect it like we once did. We allow the world to devalue it, to make it of low worth. Marriage is no longer precious. And what's amazing in this passage, whether you're single or married, we are to all have a high regard of marriage. Now, for years, I never kind of saw this passage. And I used to tell a lot of jokes about marriage. The the first joke I ever told in my life. Do you know what mixed emotions are? Mixed emotions are watching your mother-in-law drive off a cliff in your brand-new car. (laughs) That joke is wrong. It's funny, but it's wrong. And you look at the comedians nowadays, how often is marriage and how often especially is the husband the brunt of all the jokes? We just laugh along with them because it's so funny. But their material degrades the sanctity of marriage. It pokes holes in it. And we just laugh. We're to honor marriage. We're to respect marriage. We're to lift up marriage. Secondly, in that same verse, we're... One of the attacks is we are not maintaining moral purity. We're not maintaining moral purity. He talks about the marriage bed, which is the most intimate, personal aspect of the husband-wife relationship. And he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. May it be sexually pure. The problem is the enemy of our soul and our own flesh attacks us with pornography. And we don't talk about it in the church, do we? We just suffer in silence. Well, that needs to stop. We need to maintain moral purity. And you know why? It says right in this passage, which should make us shudder, For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God will judge, number one, all those involved in sexual activity apart from the sanctity of marriage. Hear that clearly. Premarital sex, God will judge. It can't be much plainer than that. And number two, that is the immoral the adulterous, those who betray their marriage vows. Maybe you don't do it physically. Maybe you defile your marriage by betraying your vows in other ways. God will judge these defilers of marriage. Now, does God forgive all sin? Yes. Yes. So whether or not this has been your case in the past or not, God brings forgiveness. Are there still consequences to our sin? Yes. That is the struggle. And we need to claim the forgiveness that he offers and he washes our soul and he he washes our conscience clear. But as believers, as followers of Jesus... We will pay a price if we dabble in these areas. We will lose reward. He may even take us home early. One author says, they often escape detection on earth, but they will not avoid God's notice nor his eventual judgment. Maintain moral purity. Honor marriage honor your marriage and honor the marriages of those that you know pretty clear isn't it in verse 5 the other threat to our family stability is materialism materialism verse 5 keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think all of us find ourselves at times trying to impress other people with finances that are not ours. We go into debt. We take out another loan. We buy the shiny car or the bigger house or the vacation or whatever it is in your life. The world is saying to us, you must define your life by how much you own. That's materialism. And he says there in verse 5, keep your life free from love of money. He doesn't say that money is wrong. It is the love of money. And greed, which is the love of money, has lured many believers away from a life of faithful discipleship, as has sexual temptation. covetousness. Jot down in your notes 1 Timothy 6.10. Take a look at that this afternoon, if you would. As opposed to Being controlled by money, the greed and want for more and more, he says, be content with what you have. Learn contentment. Be satisfied with what God provides for you. Here's the funny thing that I hadn't learned until later in life. You can learn contentment. Now, what's so amazing is he's talking about greed and how money controls us. And then at the end of verse 5, we find our promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I scratched my head for a couple days saying, how does that fit into the text? How does it fit into the flow of the argument of the passage? Does it make sense? Well, yes, it does. And I could have much easier preached Genesis 28 or Deuteronomy 31 or Joshua 1.5 or 1 Chronicles 28 verse 20. That same promise is found in all of those places. But they all seem in those locations to be particular to a person like David saying to Solomon, God will never leave you or forsake you. Joshua, you're taking over this command of the nation. God will never leave you or forsake you. They seem particular and specific. But in Hebrews thirteen five, the promise seems universal for believers. But that left me with a struggle. How does it fit? And as I spent time and, and studied and prayed and, I finally realized our lack of contentment, hear this carefully, our lack of contentment reveals a distrust in God as our provider. When we have a lack of contentment in our lives, it becomes a sin of unbelief. As if God weren't around anymore didn't care about us, didn't take care of us. And the author then pulls this truth from the Old Testament, brings it into the New Testament and says, God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never fail you or abandon you. See, the root of the lust for material things Cast doubt on God's faithfulness as provider and protector. See, the, the basis of contentment, why should I be content, is that God's promises, he will never, ever leave me or forsake me. He will always be with me and with you. He is a present help right now. And we can say when we're thinking clearly, his presence is better than our possessions. Amen? We can say that when we're thinking clearly. But when our mind gets clouded, when the world tries to change our standards, we forget of God's presence in our life and we go after things. Since God is always with us, Think about this. Since God is always with us, we have everything we need. Everything. And this promise here at the end of verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a promise of God as we have here. It's meant to remind us during the hour of our trial when we are being tempted to change our standard from God to stuff. Don't forget this promise. He's with us. He provides for us. He cares for us. That's our promise. Finally, in chapter 13, verse 6, the other threat to family stability is anxiety anxiety. Will God really come through? How am I going to take care of that bill coming up? What about this broken relationship? He says in verse 6, so based upon this promise that God is always with us, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. I will not be anxious. What can man do to me? Ultimately, what can man do to me? The promise in verse 5 leads to, number one, confidence, and secondly, peace. The author here quotes Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. And it's the only New Testament passage that describes God as our Helper. And this question at the end, what can man do to me? That question presumes the answer, nothing at all. What can man do to me? Ultimately, nothing at all. With God's presence, no event in life can shake us as believers from this foundation that my God will never leave me and never turn his back on me. I can trust him. I can allow it to bring stability to my family, my earthly family, and my spiritual family. What is he saying in these six verses? Our relationship on earth must reflect God's growing holiness in us. So what does this mean for us individually? and corporately which of these practical applications that we talked about this morning revealed a shallowness in your demonstration of god's growing holiness in your life where did you look in and see you still got a fur piece to go was it genuine love for fellow believers Was it intentionally loving strangers? Was it compassion for the marginalized or the cast-out ones? Was it a compromise in your defense of marriage or your purity? Or is money becoming too important to you? Or is it anxiety on what man can do to you? Which one Did you see yourself wanting? Please be reminded this morning that God will never leave us or forsake us. He will always be there for us. We can count on him being there. And may this be reflected in how you and I live our lives before others, and how you grow in your holiness before God. His desire, God's desire, is to work into our character, the very character of the Savior, Jesus Christ, conformed to the image of his Son. And he's not going to leave us through the process. Let's pray.